please turn to uh, find your Bibles, Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. Luke 19 and 11. Um, I know it's polite uh, and probably in some ways expected to say it's good to be back, but it really is. It really is good to be back. I agree with what uh, Tricia and Judy said. You know, I think Judy said something like this. I, I, I don't even know how to put it in words. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> so uh, it, it is great to be back with you all again. We're, you, you all again. Yeah, well, that's not Tennessee talk. It's not. It has to be y'all. Yeah. So uh, my understanding is that you have been in, um, in Matthew in parables, talking about parables. And uh, it seems like everybody has their own definition of what a parable is. And a lot of them are good, but essentially parables are a story that uh, illustrate at least one, and sometimes many, really essential truths that can best be communicated by stories. I like Warren Wiersbe's uh, definition of, um, of a parable. He says a parable is a mirror that becomes a window. It's a mirror that becomes a window in the sense that it's something where you see yourself and it's something that becomes a window whereby you see essential truths about God and about, your, and about yourself. Parables often expose uh, and correct our really fundamental misunderstandings about God. We all know the, the, the story, the, the, the parable, right, of the prodigal son, Luke 15. And as this story unfolds, one of the things we see is the Pharisees sitting on the side over there who thought they understood about God, thought they intuited who God was like and what God was like. And as Jesus tells this story about this this, uh, this, uh, this son, this profligate son that, that spent all his father's dough, dissed on his father's, went to a foreign country, lived riotous living, ended up in a pigsty and all that stuff and came home. When he came home, the Pharisees were expecting that, man, is he going to get it? But in the parable, we know that the father ran to the son and lavished his love on the son. And that 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 story we know so well because it's been burned into our hearts because it's a parable that, that corrects what we would think about God because we don't intuit God very good. Is intuit a word? We, our, our intuitions of God are often just, just wrong. And parables, like in no other way, uh, correct misunderstandings, fundamental basic misunderstandings that we have about God. You know, Jesus is a great teacher, the great teacher, and he understood this well, what somebody later, much later, formed into a quote that says this, give me the facts and I'll learn. Give me the truth and I'll believe it. But tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. So this morning we're going to look at a parable in Luke 19, and by God's grace, he will place this in our hearts where it will live forever and keep teaching us about who God is, who we are. Luke 19, read with me, or just follow along with me, I should say, in verse 11. Now, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. 
And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went out to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that they might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. You know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does, does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is a very practical parable. For a number of reasons, but one is that it addresses a human tendency that people act in their own interest, or at least what they think to be their own interest, or their best interest. I remember a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I had a boss in the early 70s that used to kind of, you know, he was almost kind of a philosopher king, and he would kind of, you know, take me to lunch, and he'd tell me things. And one time I remember him saying, he said, Terry, most people do what they do in order to gain a benefit or avoid a loss. And everyone, everyone in this parable experiences a gain or a loss based on what they believe to be true about God. This parable is about stewardship. And stewardship's kind of a long, clumsy, theological word, but basically what it means is this. Stewardship is using the assets that have been entrusted to you to advance the interests of their owner. Using what has been entrusted to you, not yours, but something that has been entrusted to you to advance the, the interests of the one whose assets are in, uh, that they are, who owns them. And, and this parable is very similar to another parable about stewardship of the talents in Matthew 25. But there are a couple of noteworthy differences that will help us, I think, interpret this parable. In the talent parable in Matthew 25, 
The slaves are given different amounts according to their abilities. Some five, some one. But, it, but, it, but what, what the master gives them is different depending upon what their abilities are. But in this parable, each slave is given the same amount. In the talent parable, at the accounting time, the slaves say, look, master, I have gained this with what you gave me. I have gained. You can check this out later in the, in, in the parable of Matthew 25. But the slaves say, look, master, I have gained. But in this parable, the slaves say, look, master, your mina has gained. Your mina has gained. Now, there, there's, there's more um, differences than this, but these are the ones that we're going to focus on. What are we to make of this anyway? We could ask ourselves a good question at this point, and that is, what is it that one, the what is the one thing that all Christians have in the same measure that we've been given? It doesn't matter w- what your abilities are, what your talents are, your giftings, or anything is. And the answer is, it's the gospel. We differ in gifts and abilities and capacities, but the one thing that we have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 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 as almost to kind of. Because this is a parable about Jesus departing and him coming back after a while as king. Remember what Jesus said to his apostles. He said in Matthew 28, he said, do business. He says, you will be my, or um, go into the world and make disciples of men. Do business with what I'm giving you. In Acts 1.8, just before his ascension, He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Do business. Do business. The Apostle Paul called the gospel a treasure, a deposit that we have in earthen vessels. And again, I want to make clear the point that it's the gospel, it is the mina in this parable that made the gain, that gained the increase, not the slave. Look, master, your mina has gained 10 more. It's the gospel that gets the job done. Paul reminds us of this in in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. Speaking of the gospel, he says, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing in you, even as it has been doing in you. With that in mind, let's look a little further into this parable. Each slave is given one mina, which is uh, about four months' wages. I was going to say a mina is 50 shekels, but that probably wouldn't help a lot. (laughs) It didn't help me. Uh, But it's four months' wages, and that's a considerable sum, right? For a common slave to be walking around with. I mean, that's unusual, that this nobleman is entrusting his wealth to common slaves. It's unusual to say the least. But it had to present an incredible opportunity and responsibility for the slaves. This master is unusual. And the parable begins with the master giving, but the giving comes with a command and a promise. Do this, do business with this until I return. Now each servant as we've said, had the same deposit, which most surely represents the 
message of the gospel. Just as we have been approved by God, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And in, and in 1 Timothy, that, that, that whole letter is full of Paul reminding first himself and then Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him in the gospel. The gospel is a deposit that we have been entrusted with. Now, the bulk of this parable is about each slave's response to the command of their master, particularly the third worthless slave. Now, we notice that uh, these uh, slaves were serving their master, left by their master in a hostile environment. It says that the citizens hated them and actually uh, followed him, as it were, out of town, sent a delegation after him. So great was their hatred. So doing business in the master's behalf, they would experience opposition and persecution. And that is the reality for all of us who serve Christ. The, world, the, the word says, Jesus said, the world hated me and it will hate you. Doing the master's business would bring hostility. Amina was a weight. Like 50 shekels. Take it to the bank. It, it was a weight. They, now we have coins that are identified primarily by what's on them, right? But, but back in the day, uh, there were few, if any, common mints where, you know, a, a mint for the whole realm, so to speak, was, was uh, the, the coins were common. And so it wasn't uncommon at all for um, a certain weight of a coin, like a shekel, to bear the imprint or the picture or some message about the local ruler. I mean, we, that still carries on to today, right? If you take a dollar bill out of your pocket, it's got, right, pictures on it. You know, there's the Washington Quarter, you know, with the exception of one that's got a buffalo on it, but that's, that doesn't count. That's a nickel, by the way, for those of you that haven't seen a buffalo nickel. Uh, but anyway, and so, and we still talk about, to this day, about currency, and it's what? Face value. So, it is at least possible, if not likely, that this coin that they were given bore the impress of the ruler that was hated. So they're doing business with coinage, bearing the image of a hated ruler. Now, there's nothing said in particular about the persecution that slaves experienced, but it's clearly implied. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. In the world you have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. You know, we wish that obedience to our master wouldn't cost, but it does. We wish that it wouldn't hurt, but it will. But this parable illustrates the incomparable, disproportionate, eternal worth of doing the king's business even at the cost of suffering. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, momentary, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our all comparison. First, we have a command. Do business with this. 
and a promise till I return. What's your first reaction to a commandment? When you read a commandment in Scripture, what's your first reaction to it? Is it like, this is an obligation, this is a burden? That's the way I think that the, uh, the, the, the third slave saw this. But, but actually, God's commandments are for our benefit. They address us in the areas of weakness. Did you ever notice that in the scriptures, the commandment is to love one another, which we're not good at. It doesn't tell us to love ourselves. We got that one. But it does command us in our weakness. And the, the thing about it is that we are so weak in these commands that it presses us into God for strength and grace to walk in these commandments that he's given us. And also, commandments are an avenue of blessing and reward. Psalm 19, after talking about the statutes of God, the ordinances of God, the commandments of God, it says that this, that they are more desirable, more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. And moreover, your servant is warned, that is, your servant is given a heads up that in keeping them, there's great reward. Great reward. Now, we're not told the attitude of the first two slaves because the focus is on the third, but whatever at those attitudes were of the first two, they resulted in faithful obedience to the master. And obedience is a product of faith, and love. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is also the proof of what we say we believe. Now, pointing out that disconnect sometimes between what we profess and what we say we believe and the way that we, and, and our faithfulness to that, Jesus said this to his disciples in pointing out this disconnect. He says, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things I say? This parable shows that our obedience or disobedience begins with our view of God and what we believe to be true about him. The beliefs of the first two slaves, whatever they were, they must have been correct because they, it resulted in obedience. But what about the third slave? It says he was suspicious of his master. He said, I know, I was afraid of you. Because I know that you're an exacting man. The word there is osteros, which we get, from which we get the word austere, demanding. That was his view of God. The third slave erroneously thought that his master was selfish and no concern for the slaves that he wanted to get. He assumed that his master was a taker. A taker. You know, that's the biggest lie in the world. If you go out and talk to people about what do you think about God, almost the universal understanding, the intuition that the world has about God is that God wants something from them instead of wants to give them something. And Christians, we swim in that water and it affects the way that we think. And it is only as we read and understand God's self-revelation 
in his word about who he is, that those misconceptions, those intuitions are laid aside and we lay hold of God as he is. You know, a wrong view of God is starting off was where this third slave was. He said, I was afraid of you. And I know that you're a, an exacting man, an austeros master. A.W. Tozer, about this uh, passage, said this. He said, nothing twists and deforms a soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. If that's where we're starting, we're starting in a bad place. The third slave likely doubted whether the master would return as king. He secured the mina in case he returned instead of using it in anticipation that he would return. Not only this, not only did the third slave mistrust his master, he also misunderstood the power of what his master had given him to do business with. The other two servants, it was the master's meaning, not their business skills, that yielded the increase, and so it is with the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. But the third slave put the mina in a handkerchief. That's interesting, isn't it? Putting it in a handkerchief. I don't know, maybe you see more. I see two possibilities with this. The first was preservation. The slave wanted to preserve what the master had given him, but, but he hadn't given it to him to preserve, but to propagate. Not to save, but to spread. And so it is with many of us. We carefully guard the gospel that we've been entrusted with. And that's important. What we believe about the gospel, uh, that's very important. But we shrink wrap it oftentimes in our own hearts to save rather than spread it. So, Preservation is one possibility for the handkerchief thing. The second one that I see is concealment of the master's image to avoid persecution and shame. You know, the gospel that we've been entrusted with is of Jesus, who's regarded by the world, really, as a milquetoast loser. if not a servant for whatever it is that they want, but certainly not a, a savior whose blood was shed in order that we might be reconciled to God. Yeah, that, that's how the world looks at, that's how the enemies of God look at the Lord Jesus Christ. But in fact, his death satisfied the wrath of God for everyone and anyone who will repent of their sins and trust him. That's what the gospel says. It's a story of death. It's a story of victory over death. It's a story of suffering. It's a story of, 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 of rising again 
over death and hell and the grave. And it's a story about his coming again to receive his own and judge all who refuse him. I gotta ask you, that's not a popular story. Are you ashamed of it? Many, many today are sticking that gospel in a handkerchief and concealing it and saying that's something else. That it's not about death. It's not about judgment. It's not about wrath. It's not about Jesus delivering us from God's righteous wrath. That it's something else that's a lot more palatable. It's being dumbed down. That's a whole other sermon. I'm give it some more. But do you believe that the gospel is fragile and weak, that, that when it's presented to the world, that it's not able to accomplish king, kingdom business? Or do you believe that, as Isaiah 55, 11 says, my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Are you faithful with the gospel, the masters entrusted you? Or are you doing business in preparation for his return. You know, there's preppers all around us today. All right, prepper, I mean, it's a thing, right? I mean, you turn on the TV and uh, one guy's selling you, uh, what is it, uh, American Patriot food supply in case everything goes, you know, wonky like that. You got something to eat. You turn on certain uh, news channel that, that rhymes with ox and you hear uh, William Devane you know, telling you that you need to buy gold from Roslyn Capital to prepare for whatever. The preppers are all around us. And they're doing, they're, they're making preparations for what they think is coming. Now, Thomas Brooks is a Puritan. And, and you know, we, from this place, Spurgeon's quoted a lot. <laughs> and, uh, but the person that Spurgeon quotes more than anybody else is a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks. And here's what he said about the stewardship of Christians with what we've been entrusted. Get ready because it's called the saint's shame. He says, oh, then be ashamed, Christian, that worldlings are more studious and industrious to make sure with pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. The faithful servants gained both the meanest and were granted rulerships over the cities. It, that's a kind of disproportionate reward, don't you think? It says, that, you know, the master says, you've been faithful in a little, little thing. Here, here's a rulership of 10 cities. I mean, that's like off the charts, disproportionate, Right? And the same thing's true of, of, of the one uh, that was given rulership over five cities. You know, God is a rewarder, Hebrews reminds us. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Because if we don't believe that, if we don't believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, we won't keep coming. 
Now, it's, it's noteworthy here that the master makes no promise of reward at all in this parable. By contrast, we have promise after promise after promise of reward for faithfulness. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus said, you know, when you're persecuted for my name, say, great is your reward. In Matthew 6, if your giving is done in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward. In Matthew 6, 6, prayer, when we pray, God will reward you. In Mark 9, even a cup of cold water. Reward, it, it It's like God is looking for excuses to reward. He gives us his gospel, his treasure as a deposit, and then rewards us. I mean, how cool is that? The third slave, on the other hand, lost even the meaning he had. It was given to the slave that had 10. We've been faithful. And it's a basic principle of Christian life. Well, one that we don't think about very often, but that wasted opportunity means a loss of reward. If we don't use the deposit that God gives us under his direction, why should we even have them? And what Jesus said here is not a one-off. In Matthew 13, he says, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And Spurgeon says, you knew it was coming. It's always so. The gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness, while the unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. It's kind of a use it or lose it. Now, some typical responses to uh, the call for faithfulness with the gospel, some typical Christian responses. One, I've heard it, I've used it. Evangelism is not my gift. I have a hard time sharing the gospel. It's just not my, my gift. But what the master gave them was not a gift, but a deposit with which they were entrusted. And the power is in that gospel, not in those who share it. You know, if you're not very good at sharing the gospel, I'm not. But, you know, we have no problem. Like if we're not good at golf, we'll go take lessons. If we're not good at something else, We'll dive into it. Something that we know is of value, we'll pour ourselves into it. A couple things. There's a book called Gospel Fluency by a guy by the name of Jeff Mendersdorf. Actually, it's a booklet. It's really small. And the subtitle is How to Use, excuse me, Speaking the Truth of Jesus into Everyday Life. How to Get Better at It. I'll be more faithful with it. And another one by Ray Comfort is called By All Means. By All Means. That's another small booklet. It's how to use what you have to reach the lost. You know, it is an incredible opportunity, as well as responsibility, 
It's an incredible commandment to blessing to do business with God's gospel. You know that later on after this story, as Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem and the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, the, and, and some of the people say, hey, Jesus, shut these people up. They're, 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 they're giving the message. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if these are quiet, even the stones would call out. You know, God has chosen you and me to deliver a message that he could have stones cry out in order that he might bless us and reward us. I've also heard that what I can do is so little it really doesn't matter. I want you to notice that in this, it says it twice to both of the faithful servants that, that the master said, you were faithful in a little thing. When sharing the gospel, and the power of God and his gospel, those are all that matter. Our God is concerned with our faithfulness in the little things. We always talk about moving mountains, right? That's, that's significant. But if you spin that back, it starts with the faith of a mustard seed. God delights in using small, weak things. <laughs> Praise God. That's you and me. Nobody ever made a bigger mistake than he who did nothing because he can only do a little. God rewards a little. The master was, was, rewarding their, was rewarding their faithfulness in little things. And, and here's something else just to remember because like you, you're beating yourself up on the likely results of your sharing the gospel, right? Before it ever starts. Remember this that when the gospel is preached, according to Romans 1.9, when the gospel is preached, God is glorified whether anybody responds or not. Paul said, God whom I serve, the word could be translated worship, in the preaching of the gospel. And that's what we're encouraged to hear. So I said a parable's a mirror. How do you see yourself here? Everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in the world is in this parable somewhere. Either as a faithful slave, a faithless slave, or an enemy. And the cool thing about this parable is Jesus tells us exactly what to expect on his return. No guesswork. Are you doing the master's business with the gospel of Jesus? Have you been preserving or concealing it in your own little handkerchief? If you're like me, the answers to these questions reveal what we truly believe about our master and his gospel. And some of us need to repent of those beliefs that we think God is harsh, that he's demanding, that he's a taker. 
That's not what our Bible says. God so loved the world that what? Where does this all start? God so loved the world that what? He gave? He gave. He gave. He gives. He gives. That's a message that the world doesn't want to hear, but needs to hear. So are you obediently sharing verbally, knowing that the reward is inconceivably great? What about your lifestyle? Do the people at your work, at school, down at the gym, see a life in you that can only be explained because of your commitment to gospel business? doing the king's business. And what about your church? Are you plugged in to the gospel business of building one another up? Or are you just mainly like a church consumer? Dear ones, the take-home from this parable is simple. Learn from the servants. Extravagant rewards await faithfulness with the gospel. That's what God wants. That's what his heart is. But rebuke and loss awaits faithlessness. And then for those who remain enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns as king, retribution, destruction, shouldn't surprise any of us what Jesus' agenda is on his return. Now, now is the opportune time for faithless servants to become more faithful by believing what the Bible says about our master and his gospel. For faithful servants to be encouraged even more by the reward that's to come. Now is the opportune time for the enemies of the king to bow the knee and to receive his mercy instead of his wrath. You know, it's a privilege and a blessing to be entrusted with the king's business. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the clarity of this parable. We ask, Lord, for Holy Spirit power. We ask, Lord, for Holy Spirit conviction in our lives, Lord, to to hear what you're saying, to see you as you are, Lord, so that we might respond in faith and love and obedience to your great glory, Father, and for our great benefit. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.